Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday! Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show, and welcome to my favorite day of the week, the day we open up the phone lines and every subject is fair game. And there's a lot to talk about as well. The passing of Sandra Day O'Connor, the very first woman to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, and I'm sad to hear of her passing. Uh, we had the crazy Ron DeSantis-Gavin Newsom debate last night, and that's been interesting as well. Although Ron DeSantis' campaign is said to have a number of problems right now, they've apparently got internal strife within the campaign staff, and that's not doing Ron DeSantis any favors. Fact is, he doesn't have the support, and I don't think he'll get the support between now and, say, July of next year to be able to secure the Republican nomination. And, of course, the deep state out there, yeah, the deep staters out there, they would like you to go for Nikki Haley instead. I think for a while the deep state and the establishment Republicans really wanted you to go for DeSantis. The deep state and the establishment Republicans do not like Donald Trump, even though they realize he is the most likely person, almost certain at this point, to get the nomination. And that's going to be a happy day for Americans. But welcome to First Amendment Friday. Glad to get your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you happen to be a naysayer on this program for almost 26 years, we've always put naysayers to the head of the line. And we'll be glad to do it every single time if you disagree. We're not one of those shows where we screen out the point of view of people who disagree with me. Because you want to disagree with me, just bring some facts and some logic and a willingness to answer a couple of questions and you are good to go. I want to tell you about one of the crazy things that's being done by the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, as though he doesn't have enough problems already with an illegal alien invasion. Now he's going to go to bat for those who are suffering from height and weight discrimination, believe it or not. You know, with all the other city problems that New York City has, you would think that would be fairly low on the priority list. But Welcome to the program. If you want to vote in our Twitter poll as your way of participating, this one is strange. A state decides to adopt a perfectly sensible law that says boys born as boys use the boys' room in public school restrooms and locker rooms. Girls use the ladies' room or the girls' room and the girls' locker room. And uh, and you don't have trans boy, trans women who used to be boys or now pretend that they are women uh, using the women's locker room. I think that is a perfectly sensible thing to do. And the state of Idaho adopted that law. So that was the choice of the people's representatives in Idaho. It's a choice I happen to agree with. But even if I didn't agree with it, it was the choice of their lawmakers. And now we have 21 Democrat attorneys general from the from 21 reliably blue left wing states around America who are joining in to a legal effort to try to kill that law in the state of Idaho. A law that, do I need to mention the fact that the laws of Idaho don't apply anywhere outside the laws of the uh, state of Idaho? I mean, this doesn't make any sense at all. It's as though California, which is one of the states, uh, New York State under Letitia James, that they seem to think that they have the authority to tell Idaho what kind of laws they may have and which kind of laws they may not have. So 
I don't agree with that, but should a state, states, a group of states, in this case, 21 of them, legally go after a state that provides protection of privacy and safety and security in public bathrooms? I would answer no to that. You can answer any way you like at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I've always believed in. I joined a long time ago. You should join too. Just go to amac.us or call them up, 888-262-2006. AMAC's better, better for you and better for America. Now, yesterday, the poll was this. Does America need to scale back on the number of legal immigrants it accepts? Again, I'm not talking about the massive invasion that Joe Biden set off of millions of illegal aliens in just the last three years. But do we need to scale back on the number of legal immigrants as well? I answered that one yes, and I told you I think the right number might be, say, a half a million people a year. It has been as low during uh, the 80s as about 300,000 legal and, and uh, green cards a year handed out. It's been as high as well over a million as it is currently. I think we need to scale that back. I think we need to let the uh, let the country adjust and assimilate the people that have already come in so we don't end up as just a bunch of fractured cultures spread out across the American landscape. 82% of you agreed with my yes vote. Only 18% of you said no. And a welcome to our newest affiliate. We have a lot of Lars affiliates. They're all over America. And uh, the latest one in Fargo, North Dakota, WZFG, The Flag. That's 1100 AM. Glad to have you there on The Flag in North Dakota, Fargo. You can listen to great talk radio all day long. And, of course, you can hear my show as well. 866-439-5277. Before I go to calls, let me mention just this. Eric Adams, mayor of New York City, who has big, huge problems. He has problems with law enforcement. He has problems with illegal aliens. He has economic problems. The city is telling its own residents they've got to dramatically cut back on all the essential services provided by the city. And what does he do now? He signs a new law into effect to prohibit discrimination on the basis of a person's height or weight in employment, housing, and public accommodations. They might as well have called it the lawyer full employment law because it really isn't A, necessary, or B, going to do anybody any good. The law creates an exemption for employers who need to consider height or weight in employment decisions only where required by federal, state, or local laws and regulations or where the Commission on Human Rights, again, another city hall bureaucracy, permits such considerations because height or weight may prevent a person from performing the essential requirements of the job. So in other words, you can only use it where it makes sense to use it. And have we seen any examples of somebody, of course, these days, people will tell you all day long and twice on Sunday why I'm a victim. I'm a victim because of fat. I'm a victim because of height. I'm a victim because I'm short. Yes, we've created brand new victim classes in America. That makes no sense whatsoever to me. To your calls now. Let's go first to Alabama and talk to Victoria. Hey, Victoria, welcome to First Amendment Friday. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars, first time caller here. I just wanted to know why is it that, uh, I guess, the media constantly talks about how Kamala Harris is black and she's not? Um, well, she, she has a black father. Uh, she's, uh, and her mother was Asian, I believe. So why would you say she's not? Well, because uh, I did not know that her father was. I thought that she was an Indian and that they would always say that she was a black woman. So I didn't even know that. 
her father no, was. No, that's born. that's her racial makeup. And frankly, I I don't know why anybody cares what race anybody right. is, Victoria. I mean, honestly, right. uh, you know, I, I know that they, they wanted to, you know, Joe Biden said he wanted to pick a person of color uh, who was also female for his vice president. So he, he hired Kamala Harris as an affirmative action hire. Now, can you imagine? We all, I mean, I think those of us who, who reasonably don't care what somebody's race or gender is, we say, hire the best person for the job. Don't hire based on things that have nothing to do with the job. And look what you get in an affirmative action hire like Kamala Hamas. In any case, Victoria, thanks for the call. Back in a moment, I'll get more, more of your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Biden's speech or press conference must have C-3PO present. Remember that I am fluent in over six million forms of... What are you telling them? May the force be with you, C-3PO. <laughs> I'm laughing too. This is the Lars Larson Show. <laughs> Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on this First Amendment Friday. I've got to mention the expulsion of George Santos, a Republican member of Congress. The House of Representatives today voted to expel him from the Congress. Now, the Congress has only done this five times in American history. It has not done it at all in the last 20 years. And one of the other significant differences is that George Santos, now I guess former member of Congress, is the only person to be expelled from the House without a criminal conviction. The other four times, five times, that it's been done, it involved a member of Congress who had been convicted of a crime. Now, George Santos has been accused of crimes. He's been accused of a bunch of different crimes and ethical lapses that came up after he was found to have fabricated key parts of his biography. In other words, he lied to the voters. I don't have any sympathy for that at all. The interesting thing about the vote... The final vote, 311 to expel him, to 114 not to expel him. The 114 were all Republicans. And about half of the Republicans voted to expel Santos. The other half voted not to. All of the Democrats voted to expel Santos. That's what you got to, how you got to a 311 to 114 vote. And why is that significant? I want to tell you something. One of the arguments I hear uh, for not expelling George Santos is, look, the Democrats get away with murder. I mean, not maybe not literally murder, but they get away with some really, really bad things and have for decades. And we never seem to hold them to account. So if, if they're going to get away with bad things, why don't we let people on our side get away with bad things? And, and I don't buy that argument. I want us to have a high standard for our government. And I realize all the jokes about you expect all elected officials to lie to the voters. You expect them not to do what they promised to do. You expect all of those things. I think Donald Trump was a game changer for American politics. He came in. He made promises about what he would do. Some of what he promised required action by Congress, and Congress refused to do it. And he still got some of it done anyway. In other words, he kept to his promises. And as I recall... The folks at Heritage and other groups, the Federalist Society, who keep track of all the promises of politicians and whether or not they actually fulfill those promises, 
Donald Trump has been one of the best performing politicians in American history. I realize he wasn't a politician until he came in and ran for president, runs for the top job and gets it. But the fact is, we ought to start raising the standards for the people we elect to public office. Now, if you're one of those people who says, no, I've just resigned myself to the fact that these politicians are always going to lie to me. If you had those same kind of expectations, let's say, for your children or the people who work at your company, if you said, well, my kids are going to lie to me, they're going to cheat, they're going to steal, they're going to do things that are illegal or immoral or both. Um, if you set low expectations, you won't be disappointed. I think if you set high expectations, you can start to communicate. We are going to require members of Congress and other elected officials to actually do what they say they're going to do, or at worst case, explain why they didn't get it done. And until we start setting high standards, in this case, I have to agree. I don't want people like George Santos who lie to the voters, who lie about their background, who may have actually committed crimes. He does have a right to his day in court. But I think it's all right to have the Congress say this person is so bad that he needs to be shown the door. And he was shown the door today. To your calls on this First Amendment Friday at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, naysayers go first on this show. Howard's on the line from Louisiana. Hey, Howard, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Oh, I just wondered, you know, on the news we see all the hostages that were freed, which is a good thing. That's very good. But we don't see any uh, Palestinians uh, people that were in the prisons, you know, I call them the concentration camps, you know. Well, well, hold on. The Palestinians, uh, so they're releasing about three convicted criminals uh, to the to the to Hamas for every one of the hostages. Can you tell me why you'd call them concentration camps? Well, one thing, you know, they're in there and they had been uh, charged with anything they're all uh teenagers or young people pro- they're not all teenagers howard number one number two all, I didn't the, say the ones that are all. being released from prison are convicted criminals so what are we talking I about i don't here? think so how could you be a criminal when you not even con- uh, convicted not even charged there's one girl that got out of there been there for three years her mama said she was raped completely uh, constantly in there not charged, and the only thing they got it for was protesting. I'm sorry, in the uh, in the streets, not counting the eighty five thousand protesting kids like that. I, I think that uh, you know, Howard. I suspect I suspect that you're you're accepting the Democrat talking points because most of the prisoners who are being released are are, are being released from custody because they were in custody because they committed crimes. Number one. Number okay, two, well, won't you, won't, won't Howard, the, the Howard, media, Howard every interview. I've been I've been in a bunch. Well, for one thing, they're going to go back to Gaza and there's not a whole lot of access to Gazans. Oh, they, they're, uh, by, they're releasing them. In I the thought West you wanted Bank. an answer to the question. Apparently you don't. Well, you're you not want, giving the, you're, you're lying about it. You know, no, it. I'm not. I'm not. Howard, why well, would I lie about this? I mean, why, Do, why don't they interview the. Uh, the, the Palestinians' kids that are getting out of there, they release them. Uh, because the media because, doesn't have access to them except what Hamas allows. I was trying to so answer who this question. Who controls the media I, I, in this country? I don't think... I don't think the Israelis. Howard, what? 
Who's Israel? Israelis control the media. No, they don't. You know, all your, your Howard, people, well, how about, Howard how about that is a dirty book? slur. What Israelis no, do you think control my slur. show? It's the truth. Howard. It's okay. Howard. Okay. Howard isn't listening anymore. The is, uh, you know, I've heard this this nonsense before. It's basically just rank anti-Semitism. Well, the Jews control all the media. Hogwash, Howard. Sorry, hogwash. I've heard that trope so many times, and I don't buy it. I've worked in media for almost 50 years now. I have never been controlled by anybody, number one. Number two, uh, you know, I don't work... Uh, for I work, I've worked for a whole bunch of different companies in those 50 years. Um, I've never seen anybody control the media or control the newsrooms where I work. And so, you know, I, Howard, I'm going to have to call hogwash on it, but I appreciate your call. Maybe we should have labeled Howard as a, uh, as a naysayer, but, but that's, that's his choice not to be labeled as a naysayer. 866, hey Lars, that's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I want to talk about this new kind of pneumonia, and it's especially affecting kids. Now, I have one suspicion that we are we are we on the verge of some new pandemic because of pneumonia just in time for the 2024 election in Ohio. There's an extremely high number of kids who are being diagnosed with pneumonia. And it looks strangely like the pneumonia. It's called white lung syndrome. Uh, there have been my, you know, a number of cases of it since August of this year. But they say in Ohio, they're showing numbers above the national average. And they're concerned about the size of this outbreak. I'm concerned about the cases that began in China. I mean, for some reason, over the last several decades, most of the bad news when it comes to infectious diseases seems to originate from China. And I remember the kind of beating that a lot of us got about three years ago when we kept telling people, look, that virus, uh, COVID, whatever you want to call it, SARS-CoV-2, is coming out of China. And we were told, no, 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 that's a lie. <laughs> we don't want to make the Chinese uh, look bad or anything like that. But the spread of cases has raised fears, according to the Daily Mail, that an American outbreak of the infection that has overwhelmed hospitals in China could hit this winter. Yeah, uh, I have two concerns about uh, Number one, if it's a legitimate concern about a disease that is spreading into the United States, then we need to probably take another look, as Republicans have suggested, at shutting down a lot of the routine travel that goes on between China and the United States the same way that Donald Trump did in late January of 2020. Back in a moment, it's First Amendment Friday, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Daisy was abandoned by her... Now, today's edition of What Is Biden Saying? I just found it interesting that uh, Biden's being a popular, a Biden's being an extremist. Now, for the translation, here's Lars Larson. 
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a First Amendment Friday. And if you want to sound off, we certainly make that possible on First Amendment Fridays and most of the other days of the week as well. The number is 866-HEY-LARS. And I want to talk a bit about what's going on with algorithms that are used on social media. Now, before your eyes glaze over, this is hugely important because the Wall Street Journal did a great story this week, and I had been intending all week long to bring it up as an issue. Because you've got advertisers right now who are boycotting Elon Musk's platform, X, I still call it Twitter, or X, to coerce him into going back to censorship. Now, are those the same advertisers that are paying money to Meta, or otherwise known as Facebook, which hosts sexualized content of kids right next to their ads? And let me give you the evidence to back that up. The Wall Street Journal indicated, and I have to say, if I've got a dog in the fight, my dog in the fight is that uh, we, we not only do the radio show, I do the radio show along with three great producers, Donovan and Joel and McKenzie, and I should give them more credit more often, but um, we also have the social media presence as an, as an adjunct to what I do on the radio. So we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Truth, Truth Social, Donald Trump's platform, we're on Getter, uh, we're also on Instagram. And in fact, we've been having a lot of fun with Instagram because it's another outlet to be able to try and explain some of the issues that I'm asked to explain by the, the people who listen to this show. But consider this. So having disclosed my dog in the fight that we do have an Instagram presence as well, Wall Street Journal reported this week Instagram's Reels video service is designed to show users streams of short videos, usually about 90 seconds, sometimes a bit longer, on topics the stream decides will interest them. So you say, wow, when I go on Instagram, uh, I end up seeing videos of things that interest me, things like sports or fashion or humor. But they point out the meta-platform-owned social app, it's owned by the same folks who own Facebook, does the same thing for its users. The algorithm decides that if you have a prurient interest in children, they're going to try to satisfy that by showing you stuff that would hit your interest. Now, what the journal did, and I think it was a great experiment, the Wall Street Journal wanted to find out what Instagram's Reels algorithm, the little, you know, the, the, the math and computer coding that decides what you see and what you don't see on Instagram, whether or not it would recommend to test accounts that were set up so they set up some accounts and said, what happens if we have an account that follows young gymnasts, cheerleaders, and other teenage or even preteen influencers who are active on Instagram? Right? Now, I guess if you're a 12-year-old girl or a 16-year-old girl watching stuff about gymnasts or cheerleaders or preteen or teenage influencers would make sense. If you're an old guy like me, doesn't make as much sense. Now, Instagram's system served up jarring doses of salacious content to those test accounts, including risque footage of children, as well as overtly sexual adult videos and ads for some of the biggest U.S. brands. So if you're worried about whether or not Elon Musk should go back to censorship, how about his competitors like Meta or Facebook or Instagram that are not doing this at all. The journal set up test accounts after observing the thousands of followers of such young people's accounts included large numbers of adult men, creepy old guys like Joe Biden. And not, I don't know if Joe Biden follows on Instagram, but 
Creepy Joe is a, is a great national example of what not to be when you get to Joe's age. And that many of the accounts who followed those kids also had demonstrated interest in sexual content related to both adults and children. The journal also tested what the algorithm would recommend after its accounts followed some of those users as well, which produced even more disturbing content along with ads. In a stream of videos recommended by Instagram, an ad for the dating app Bumble appeared between a video of somebody stroking the face of a life-size latex doll and a video of a young girl with a digitally obscured face lifting up her shirt to expose her midriff. In another, a Pizza Hut commercial followed a video of a man lying on a bed with his arm around what the caption said was a 10-year-old girl. So all of this stuff is happening on Instagram. You know, and and then boring stuff like me talking about public policy issues. I'm just asking you to consider when you see people saying in, in say, Facebook or Meta who are saying, well, Elon Musk, he's allowing all this stuff to happen because he's pulled back on censorship of the content on X or Twitter, if you want to call it that. And then you say, well, what's Facebook doing? What's Instagram doing? And what they're doing seems like it's worse and it's even arranged so that it aids and abets the perverts in our society. To your calls now at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Let's go to Mary in Virginia listening on WCHV. Hey, Mary, welcome to First Amendment Friday. What's on your mind? Hi, Lars. I wanted, you were talking before about the white lung that's happening in Ohio's children. Yeah, the, the new pneumonia that appears to be coming from China. The new pneumonia. Yep. Considering that it's concentrated in Ohio, could that have anything to do with their depleted immune system because of the chemical spill? I, I guess it could, uh, yeah, but I'm not seeing anything that's, and I, I would think that that, if you had a, a large number of kids who are connected to East Palestine, where the, the big train derailment and where the most immediate effects of those chemicals happened, uh, I would think they'd spot that pattern very, very quickly, wouldn't you? I would think so, but they haven't done a lot. <laughs> no, they haven't, and and the government has been really remiss in following that. You know, you're right about that. But you know, well, I, I, they don't just stay in one spot. No, they don't. But but little kids, especially the very young kids that appear to be affected by this new white lung non, you know, stuff, this this new form of pneumonia, you would think that if if when doctors are, I mean, you and, you've probably been to the doctor. I've been to the doctor. When they say, you know, how are you feeling? Well, I'm feeling lousy. Well, what's been happening lately? And, and, and you know, they try to get as much medical history as they can so they can spot, oh, oh, you, you have, uh, you know, you have salmonella uh, or you have E. coli and you just visited a farm and took your granddaughter to the petting zoo. Uh, okay, well, we, we know the connection there for something like E. coli or for salmonella or other diseases. I would think they'd be asking about, well, oh, you used to work, live in East Palestine. The minute they get to about three or four kids who all have this ailment and all hail from East Palestine. But, Mary, I haven't heard anything like that is happening yet. Okay. And, and I would also think this. Do you imagine that that community, I don't know for sure, but having covered, you know, where there's been a disaster in a community, especially a small town like East Palestine, I would imagine that even if people left that community, that they would make it a point to stay in touch with people from their old community 
to find out about things. You, you know what I'm saying? Your community goes through a massive flood or a storm or, in this case, a train derailment. There's, there's, you know, there are all these terrible things that happen. Even if you move your family away, say, we're getting out of here, that, that you would make connections back to the people you knew. And the first people who would shout the alarm would probably be the people of East Palestine or formerly of East Palestine who would say, hey, a bunch of our kids are all getting sick from this one illness, and we think it might be tied back to the t- train derailment and the massive plume of chemicals that went up after it happened. If it's happening, I would expect those people who are becoming the victims of that happening are probably the most likely to try to bring it to somebody's attention. Mary, thanks very much. I appreciate the call. It's First Amendment Friday. Your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And coming up, you got the big COP28 climate summit that's going on. We're going to talk about the implications of that, who's going, and what they're going to be doing to the rest of us while they're there. Larson Show, we can say with complete confidence that we have no classified documents in our possession. Go ahead, search us. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to take your calls. We'll do more of that in just a moment. First, I want to bring on Craig Rucker, who is president and co-founder of the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, to talk about the craziness going on at the COP28 Climate Summit. Craig, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me on the program. Now, of course, we've all commented, I know I have a number of times, about the crazy irony of having a bunch of global elites, uh, the John Kerry's of the world, hop on their private jets, fly off to Dubai, and say, we're going to be here for literally a couple of weeks almost during the COP28 summit, uh, because we're flying here on our private jets so that we can figure out how to lecture the rest of the world on how the rest of the world should not be using fossil fuels. I mean, we start on that basis with that basis of hypocrisy just as the ground floor. Where is this thing going after that? Uh, You know, I've been to about 25 of the 28 Conference of the Parties dating back to the 1990s. And you're right. Every one of them are the same, and this is no exception. We have uh, everyone from uh, Kamala Harris going to show up, uh, Prince Charles, uh, King Charles, I guess, uh, giving out the keynote address today to start the conference. And I guess that's appropriate because, uh, you know, he himself has been such a uh, big figure in the whole climate change debate. It was as recent as 2019. He predicted the world had only 18 months left. So, I guess in one sense, it's kind of remarkable that he's even able to give the opening talk here because 18 months have come and gone and the planet hasn't ended. Uh, We actually see over and over again the same thing. This year's big issue is going to center on our diet. Uh, They want to try and remove meat from our diet. They say Americans consume way too much of it, about 127 kilograms, according to the U.N. experts. Uh, that comes out to about 280 pounds of meat per year for the average American, which is a Sounds lot. Sounds good. Food. Sounds good. Uh, I'm 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 all for it. Let me pull up a place at the table, Craig. 
Well, and what they want to do is reduce that down to about uh, 38 pounds a year. So uh, uh, that, of course, what are we going to replace it with? We're going to have to replace it with, uh, you know, vegetables and, you know, nuts and things like that. That all sounds fine. But in actuality, what they also want you to do is eat fake meat and bugs. That's uh, what they're going to be trying to push here at COP28. I mean, this, but Craig, this is the craziness I don't understand. You have all these global elites, and I don't know what King Charles eats at dinner. I don't frankly care. But for them, they, there are people who can have whatever they want for dinner. They can live in as big a house as they want to live in. And, and I know the king and his royal family live in some very nice houses that are very, very large. Um, and then tell the rest of us, but none of you is allowed to do the same. And I just wonder, where do they get off wanting to you know, tell the rest of us, you have a great lifestyle, you have a, a diet that is rich in, in all those things, including meat, but we want not only do we not want it for you, we don't want it for the rest of the planet. And, and yet we all realize that those global elites will be eating whatever they want for dinner. And, and I just wonder, where do they think they get sort of the moral uh, mission to come out and tell the rest of us how to live our lives when they live lives that are stratospherically uh, advantaged or, or, or stratospherically wealthy. Well, and you raise an excellent point there. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of different studies that have shown everything from Al Gore's own home usage, using uh, more in one month than the average American family uses in a year, yep. to uh, you name it. Uh, and, of course, the Kerry family is trying to... Uh, excuse its private jet traffic uh, by saying that uh, he does, he gives offsets, uh, meaning that uh, if uh, he's able to convince uh, those in Africa not to use so much electricity, that'll somehow assuage his guilt as to what he's able to consume uh, in terms of jet fuel. So <clears throat> we have all these different things going on with the, uh, with the rich and famous, and I expect we'll see that continue here in uh, Dubai. So are they going to, I mean, look, they're not talking about doing this as a voluntary program, are they? They're going to push this through government policies. Exactly. And uh, as a matter of fact, that's why we've been coming here to these U.N. conferences. A lot of the people wonder and ask us, where are these EV, EV mandates coming from? Well, they're genesis quite often, as well as trying to limit our meat consumption, as well as trying to... Uh, you know, do all things with smart meters and limit our electricity use or change the way we get our power, uh, have their genesis at these U.N. meetings. And so we try to be an early warning system to the public and let them know what's coming down the pike. In this particular case, there are two things. One is the uh, trying to eliminate meat eating. The other one is the actual abolition of fossil fuels at some set date in the future. Uh, you have a couple different parties, those that want to phase down fossil fuels, and that would be nations like India and the G20 nations, and then those who want to phase it out by like 2050. And that would include, unfortunately, the current administration here in the U.S., as well as the EU and some other nations that are actually fairly prosperous. I mean, so we'll see where that but comes I'm talking to Craig Rucker, who's president and co-founder of the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow. But instead of saying, let's bring the rest of the world up to the standard of living that Americans enjoy, they're saying we need to bring the United States down uh, dramatically and Western Europe down dramatically and all the other you know, modern industrialized countries, uh, whether they're in Asia or in, in North America or whether they're in Western Europe. 
we're going to bring everybody down and and then what you're not you're not going to let any of the folks who are developing countries right now achieve what they're capable of achieving uh when they're if they're ever confronted if they ever address these questions craig do they ever address the question of well why don't we just bring the whole world up to our standard or something uh, closer to it rather than bringing everybody else who's already got there down you know you raise an excellent point we tried to bring that up at cfac too they Blast capitalism. There's a very strong anti-capitalist tenor that rang through this and uh, very anti-American, thinking that the way in which we prospered is absolutely evil and needs to be thwarted. Uh, But in fact, if you look around the world, it's usually the command and control economies, the former Soviet Union, China, who has horrible air and water and, uh, you know, just terrible environmental conditions and human rights violations. That, that type of model that they use to run their country is kind of what's being bandied about as the model that we should be running our country in, when in fact the United States is a beacon of environmental responsibility. We have the cleanest air, the cleanest water. People are having the li- highest life expectancies of anywhere in the world, but that is always impugned at these uh, various COP meetings. Well, and, it's, and Craig, you know this. My audience, I think, knows this that when you're barely scratching a living out of the dirt somewhere, you don't have time to say, but are we preserving the rainforest and is the river clean? It's only when you get to a moderately prosperous society that people can look around and say, hey, we ought to have more trees or we ought to have cleaner water. That's Craig Rucker. He's with the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, keeping an eye on the doings at COP28, where they want you eating bugs and giving up your steak. It's First Amendment Friday, and you've got the Lawrence Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. It's Friday, Friday. It's Friday. Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday. Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a First Amendment Friday, and it is my favorite day of the week. And you're welcome to join the conversation. I want to talk about something that has been done by the January 6th committee. Not the ones that are looking into it now, but the Democrat-led January 6th committee. Remember the one in which the Republicans were not even able to pick the members they wanted? So the Democrats picked the Republicans they liked, people like, well, Liz Cheney and others, uh, and that's how it worked. Well, they've done something absolutely outrageous. In fact, I kind of hope it was illegal as well, because I hope that they get prosecuted for this. But I'll give you the details on that in just a moment. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com, and you can vote in our Twitter poll. Today's question, should states gang up and attack one state that passed a law to provide for protection for privacy and safety and security for children using public bathrooms in public schools. That's exactly what's going on. The state of Idaho passed something called Senate Bill 1100, and it was very simple. 
It said it prohibits transgender students from using public school restrooms and locker rooms. In other words, a boy who was born a boy who now identifies himself as a girl does not get to go to the girl's locker room or the girl's restrooms. Similarly, a young lady or a girl who was born as a girl but now identifies as male, she's not going to be showering with the guys in the guy's locker room or using the men's room in that public school. It seems very simple. It seems very tailored. And what has happened now? 21 Democrat state attorneys general, led by Washington State's Bob Ferguson and New York's Letitia James. Remember the one who promised to hunt down Donald Trump and prosecute him for something, which she's trying to do right now? Not very successfully, but she's trying to do it right now. Those two, along with 19 other states, have joined in an effort to block a law in Idaho. Now, what I find especially bizarre about this is, are the laws of the state of Idaho up to the people of Idaho and their representatives in their state legislature? I would say yes to that. Lunatic liberals, apparently they'd say something different, that somehow 21 other states have a right to tell Idaho, you may not protect children in your state the way that you're doing it. Now, I think that's crazy. So here's the way I framed the question. Should states legally attack a state that provides protection of privacy for children in public bathrooms? I'd say no. They should not attack another state like that. You can find the question at Lars Larson Show on X, or if you want to call it Twitter, Twitter. You can also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by AMAC the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I've always believed in. I joined the group, and you should too. Just go to amac.us or call them up at 888-262-2006. AMAC is better, better for you and better for America. Yesterday, I asked you this question. Does America need to scale back on the number of legal immigrants, green cards, that it accepts on a yearly basis? I said yes. So did 82% of you. Only 18% of you said uh, no to that question. And a special welcome to our newest Lars affiliate, and we have more than a 100 around the United States of America, WZFG, The Flag, in Fargo, North Dakota, where you can listen to Great Talk Radio all day at 1100 a.m., and you can hear my show there as well, so glad to have you on board. And glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And coming up later on this hour, why did Winston Churchill refuse to negotiate with Hitler? And what lessons does that historic decision offer up for today's foreign policy challenges? We're going to talk about an expert or to an expert who's written the book literally on one of the greatest heroes in world history, and that's Sir Winston Churchill. Will the new movie by the Daily Wire, Lady Ballers, get the kind of love it deserves, or will it be drowned out by activists and leftist critics? We'll talk to our favorite movie guy, Christian Toto. Coming up this hour, I'll be talking to Ben Stein about the untold side of Richard Nixon and how might the alternative perspective reshape our understanding of the man, the president, and his impact on creating a generation of peace. And I want you to take just a moment to vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find it at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Did the January 6th committee destroy videos to hide evidence? Now, this is one of the most bizarre things about this J6 committee. Remember, they're hearkening back to the incident January 6, 2021, 
And the J6 committee, handpicked by the Democrats, with no Republicans allowed to choose membership on the committee. What did they do? They appear to have erased or lost or destroyed some of the videotapes. Representative Barry Loudermilk, Republican of Georgia, Georgia, who is chairman of the House uh, Administration Oversight Subcommittee, has told our friend Just the News, um, and, and that would be uh, John Solomon, he said all of the videotapes of all the depositions are gone. Now, that makes absolutely no sense, unless, unless you believe, as I do, that the Democrats want to hide what happened on January 6th. They knew the FBI was playing a larger-than-life role in what happened on January 6th. We know that the FBI had undercover people behind the scenes and mixed into the crowd on January the 6th. And I'm sure you've heard my theory that is Nancy Pelosi wanted an excuse to impeach Donald Trump for a second time. She got it from January 6th. Even though Donald Trump, even in the eyes of Joe Biden's FBI, did not inspire or, uh, you know, or, or inspire or cause that riot to happen on January 6th. And now all of a sudden, all of the videotapes, because under House rules, the videotapes qualified as congressional evidence. Some of the clips were actually aired at some of the hearings. All of the tapes should have been preserved. And instead, Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi, the chair of that committee, is going to have to explain what happened to the videos. How in the world did those get erased? A couple of other things to mention. Our friend Todd Starnes, who holds down a great talk show at KWAM, our affiliate in Memphis, Tennessee, says House Republicans on the 2024 campaign trail will be telling voters we didn't impeach Biden or Mayorkas or Garland, but we didn't defund the FBI or the deep state. We didn't expel Bowman or Swalwell or Omar or Tlaib or Schiff. But by golly, we destroyed George Santos. Listen, I'm not going to defend George Santos. I don't think a guy with his kind of behavior and probably, although not determined by a court yet, probably a guy who did break the law. I don't think he belongs in the Congress. And I can't entirely disagree with today's decision to push George Santos out of the House of Representatives. Coming up in a moment, the Daily Wire is going to be coming out with a brand new comedy movie about the world of women's sports being transformed. Is it going to get the kind of praise it actually deserves or is it going to cause a bunch of activists and protests and all that? We're going to talk to our friend Christian Toto in just a moment and then your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. with having a, a uh, anyway, 
They had to take the top of my head off a couple times, <laughs> see if I had a brain. With the thoughts you'd be thinking you could be another Lincoln if you only had a brain. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I always look forward to our conversations with Christian Toto, who's dialed in in Hollywood. He's the host of the Hollywood and Toto podcast, and he's always telling me about the famous people he gets to interview. Well, I've got Ben Stein coming up, so Christian is the only time I can even pull even with you and in that in that regard bueller bueller (laughs) and i didn't ask him to say that either i told him my favorite ben stein movie is expelled it's not ferris bueller's day off but um but he's coming up i want to ask you about something else though and and that is about before we get to talking about the shift uh this new faith-based horror film which sounds like a contradiction in terms but i don't think it is i want to ask you about lady ballers which is I love the idea. I've, I've even shared with you, I tried to, to, to write a little story imagining what happens when somebody decides to just completely use the new transgender nonsense that's going on and say, fine, you want a winning women's team? We're going to put a whole bunch of trans men on the team and they're going to win everything. And it sounds like the folks at, uh, at Daily Wire have done that. And by, by, if you use the, the trailer as, the thing you judge it from, since I haven't seen the film itself, it looks fantastic. Well, I don't know if you've seen the whole thing yet or not. Have you? I have. I'm not officially allowed to talk too much about it, and I think for another maybe half hour or so, so I should. Oh I no, should you can't warning. do that. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> but I will tell you that. It, I mean, the film really goes there, and I think that the trailer does as well. But you know, the comedians are supposed to poke fun at things that are a little bit on the edge, that are a little bit dangerous or a little bit controversial. And, you know, this is a subject that almost every comedian will avoid and avoid aggressively. And I've been listening to a lot of interviews with Jeremy Boring, who's obviously part of the, he's a co-CEO. And and by the way, for people who haven't seen it before, Jeremy Boring started Jeremy's Razors because he got angry at at Harry's and uh, (laughs) started his own razor company. He's the guy behind the Daily Wire. And it turns out he's not a half bad actor. Am I right? Yeah, you're right. And he directed the film. He co-wrote the film. But he talked about when it came to the casting the lead role, that's him. But he said he didn't initially want to do it. He reached out to people. He said he even reached out to actors who he called canceled. And they wouldn't go near the project. So this is, you know, it's the third rail of our public discussion. But I don't think there should be third rails. We should be able to explore, discuss, analyze, and joke about things. That's That's the American way. That's how we that's how we process things. And I don't think you need to do it in a hateful way. And I don't think the film is hateful. I think a lot of people will deem it as such sight unseen. But, uh, you know, it took the Daily Wire to try this out and to challenge the norms and to tell a comedy that most platforms just won't tell. I mean, because the gist of it, just so people understand, and I haven't seen the movie, so I'm not embargoed the way our friend Christian Toto is embargoed right now. But Lady Ballers is about a, a guy who decides we're going to put together a team. It's going to be ladies basketball team, but I'm going to have men on the team. They're just going to have to identify as women. And, and at least to judge from the trailer, they do this very, very successfully with all the, you know, the pratfalls and everything else that you would expect from that kind of comedy. I think it works. And, and, but, and yet there were people who had already been canceled out by Hollywood for their various, you know, offenses they've committed, whatever they are, that weren't willing to touch this because they thought it would be too toxic. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the state of play right now. And you know, what's interesting about the film is that it's chock-a-block with Daily Wire personalities in big roles and small roles and cameos. And part of that, I think it's fun and it's sort of a insider kind of wink-wink situation. But again, I think a lot of actors would want, not want to go near the film. Now, this was filmed in secret. Uh, there were some protesters who... Uh, uh, you know, spoke out against it at one point. I guess the, the word leaked to a certain degree, but I, I think generally speaking, they did keep the secret. I had no idea about this film at all, and I'm, this is kind of my area of expertise. And maybe three days ago, they said, oh, by the way, this movie's coming out. And that, there it is, you know? So they kept, they kept the secret, and they were able to make the film. Well, in, in some ways, the idea, and at least judging from the trailer, kind of reminded me of Dodgeball, you know, which which was a, a successful comedy, except this takes on the subject of trans stuff. And and so, I don't know, it, it's still tough for me to imagine people who are so against an idea. I mean, if the idea is, uh, you know, d- handled well, then it'll be, it'll be successful. And if it's not, it'll fall on its face and let it be the way it is. I mean, are the activists now going to literally just try to stop anything that doesn't completely match up with their view of the world? Yeah, I mean, we saw that with Riley Gaines. She's a college athlete. She uh, had to compete against a trans uh, female uh, swimmer. Uh, She didn't like that, and she's speaking out against it. She's not mean or cruel or vicious. She's not telling these people they can't exist. She just says it is not fair, in her opinion, for that competition to go forward. And she has a good argument. Now, she should be able to make that argument without fear for her safety. But at one of the events that she spoke at, she was chased into a room. She had to stay in there locked for about three hours while the activists were raging outside. What happened if they got in? I mean, would they have literally hurt her? And you know she's testifying to Congress next week on the very issue that the Biden administration has been trying to basically gut Title IX, Title IX that said to colleges and universities, if you're going to have men's sports, you have to afford an, an equal opportunity, not an equity, but an equal opportunity for women, which I think most of us thought, well, that's pretty reasonable because most of the colleges already had very successful uh, men's sports teams. So give women the same opportunity and, and, and that'll be okay. And, and now they're turning it to say, well, now the men get opportunity not just on the men's team, but on the women's teams as well. Which, which seems absurd to me. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is that we should have a debate. We should have a conversation. We shouldn't be fearful of having an opinion so fearful that we have to have security guards. And I, you know, but we're seeing this on college campuses across the country, not just about this issue, but other issues as well. People are fearful for their safety, and they have very good reason to be fearful. There have been too many instances where people have been either hit or attacked or chased into an area. And they had to rely on you know some sort of outside security force just because they had an opinion. That's not the American way. Unbelievable. Let's talk about the shift because I'm really intrigued by this. Uh, it's based on the Book of Job, which I found was a, a kind of a difficult book to read. Uh, but my wife and I have both worked our way through the Book of Job. It's it's terrible. Uh, you know what what was done to Job, but Job stayed uh, lo- stayed. Uh, you know said no. I'm I'm not abandoning the Lord. How does the shift tell this in, in, a, in a sort of a different way, a metaphorical way? Well, it's a story about a man who falls in love they, you know, with a woman. They, they have a family, and then some tragedies strike. He's down and out, gets into a car accident, and he wakes up. He's faced with this fellow called the Benefactor, yep. and he's played by the great actor Neil McDonough. And this Benefactor is able to shift reality. 
so that you could, if you make a decision, you could go into one reality. It's got a bit of a multiverse angle here, and it is very complicated. So I think the film partially is successful in teasing that out and explaining what's happening within the movie. But it is about faith. It is about staying true to yourself. And it is about love, and it is about persistence. And there are many things I like about the movie, including McDonough, who's just terrific as a villain, one of our best actors in that capacity. But I felt it really didn't build the world as completely as I wanted it to be built. It felt a little unsure of itself at times. There's some some quieter moments I didn't think quite worked, but it's very ambitious. It's very interesting. It's certainly fresh, not, not the kind of story you normally see. So it is in theaters this weekend. It's called The Shift. And this is from Angel Studios. It's the upstart studio behind Sound of Freedom. So we'll see if they have another success here. And, and the I chosen, think this one's going to be a much tougher sell. Well. Yeah, and Christian, Absolutely. this Neil McDonough, I know you said some of the, the backstory on him publicly has been sort of uh, overblown. But he said, at one point, he said, I'm not going to do a scene in which I cr- uh, you know, ha- cr- kiss or have sex with another woman, even though it's a scene in a movie. And he, he describes himself as kind of being blackballed in Hollywood for a couple of years, but he stuck to his guns. That's admirable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he that's what he wants to do. That's what he doesn't want to do. He shouldn't be shamed because of that. I mean, actors on and off set have done much. Their careers have been just fine, thank you. So, listen, he's a terrific actor. He's worked consistently. There was a pause in his resume from that, but I think he has bounced back. So, you know, I, I think of all the horror stories in Hollywood and how people have been uh, canceled for their beliefs, it's, it's, often very unfairly. I don't think this was as severe. The Lars Larson Show. Something Lars would say to the woke left. I hope that after today's city council meeting, you will pack your suitcase and get the hell out of my city. Well said. Thank you. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's been many years since I got a chance to talk to Ben Stein, who has so many things in his resume uh, we've talked about over the years. Economist, attorney, actor. And no, I don't think his best role was... Uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I actually think it was the uh, documentary Expelled. Mr. Stein, welcome oh, back. Honored to be here, sir. Great. So tell Great me, pleasure. I want to talk about Nixon and the new book you've got, The Peacemaker, Nixon, the Man, the President, My Friend. But I want to ask you first about what's going on uh, between Israel and Hamas and why a, a, an astounding number of Americans have stood up to, I guess, stand up and support uh, terrorist actions that, that it include the death and the slaughter of men, women, children, and toddlers? Uh, because they're stupid, they're full of anger, that's unfocused and uh, certainly unintelligent. Uh, there's a lot of dementia spreading uh, among the population. This has been going on for some time. I have to say, I think it started in a big, big way uh, during the war in Vietnam. And uh, we just got a generalized feeling of uh, anger at the society, one might say. And it made no sense. It showed total ignorance of what was going on in real life. And yet it grew and grew and grew and grew. And I will say, if I may, and I'm embarrassed to say it, 
that I was a very small part of it when I was at Yale Law School. Uh, we were uh, protesting and protesting and protesting, and we were so damned stupid that we didn't understand that the people we were protesting against, namely us, uh, were the good guys, and the bad guys were the communists. And somehow the communists have managed to uh, infiltrate our educational system and our media, our uh, dramas, uh, the culture in many different ways, so-called so -called culture. And uh, now we have an America where really people don't know their ass from their elbow. Uh, it's a very depressing situation. Yes, it is. Uh, and, and on that note, let's go to The Peacemaker, your new book about Richard Nixon, who's been much maligned over the years. Uh, I saw positives and negatives in, in the things that he did, especially the policy choices, not necessarily Watergate. But you've written this book, The Peacemaker, Nixon, the man, the president, my friend. You worked for him. I had the great, great honor of working for him and uh, had the great honor of being his friend. And I, his daughter recently told me that, uh, Julie, this was, that I was probably the leading defender of Nixon in America right now. Uh, I cannot describe to you how much I love that man. I'm a Jew, and he saved Israel during the Yom Kippur War. He saved the Middle East from what I think could easily have turned into a nuclear war. And uh, he, he ended the war in Vietnam. He uh, opened up uh, the world, opened up America and China to each other and thereby surrounding the USSR and uh, making sure that we would win, at least for a time, the uh, Cold War. And these are achievements on a monumental historical scale. And he gets no credit for it whatsoever. It's, it's, well, since you, it's criminal. criminal. Since you mentioned uh, China, Mr. Stein, i got to ask you this. The, the thinking, correct me if I'm wrong, was... We welcome China into the world community. The United States does a, a tie, has more ties to them. We keep them from joining forces with the old Soviet Union back in the day. But the idea was if China is invited into the world community, they'll, they'll start behaving like, like, you know, a good bunch. Instead, they seem to be one of the baddest bunches on the planet right now. That one didn't exactly work out the way it was planned, did it? Not at all. And uh, a, a great, great shame. Uh, personalities have a lot to do with policies, and we unfortunately got a man who's uh, running things in China who does not really particularly value peace, does not value any kind of rules-based society, and uh, is supporting the most wicked people on the planet. I mean, the footprints, handprints uh, of China are all over the horrors in the Middle East. And uh, this, uh, they don't seem to be backing off. They don't seem to be apologetic about it. They seem to be throwing themselves into it as well as they can. And in America, people don't get it. They don't understand that China is not what we hoped it would be, not at all what we who worked for Mr. Nixon hoped it would be. Uh, they are instead a bunch of uh, troublemakers, but troublemakers with nuclear bombs and a lot of nuclear bombs. And uh, not uh, not as much fun as we thought they were going to be by a very, very long way. <laughs> not as much fun. I'm talking to Ben Stein, the author most recently of The Peacemaker. So tell me this. Uh, why in the world? I mean, there are two theories that, that I get regularly from callers. I say, look, uh, Biden is doing these things or he's having his strings pulled to do these things deliberately and that he's laying waste not just to this country, but to to uh, the, the future prospects of the world. 
I mean, he's damaging us on the economy, on energy, on just about every front. Is it is it accidental or is it deliberate? That is a really good question. We, who are lawyers, say that if you do a whole bunch of things uh, that seem to be accidental, but they all point in one direction and all have the same or very similar results, the court will hold that it is intentional and not accidental. And I believe that is certainly true of President Biden's plans, and especially in the energy sector, where he has done a job so bad, so insanely bad, that I cannot but think that he is doing it as a behest of people who really want to hurt America. I don't, I don't think we could get results like this in terms of destroying our petroleum-based, minerals-based uh, energy sector uh, unless there was some intentional intentionality to it. And I'm afraid that's true. I don't, there's just no reason why we took a very well-functioning energy sector and just demolished it for, for no clear reason. There's never been any data that showed that burning petroleum, burning coal, had any kind of measurable effect on the health of Americans or people anywhere in the world. But uh, we, we now take it as gospel because a bunch of college kids say uh, we, we think uh, poison is spreading into the lungs of everybody. And so we better stop burning coal, burning gasoline. That's nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. And it's never been proved. You can't. You cannot prove that there is any kind of measurable damage done from burning carbon-based and uh, minerals uh, to uh, produce energy. There's no data to that effect. I'm talking to Ben Stein, and in your book, The Peacemaker, one more word about that, if you don't mind, before we run out of time. Ben, you describe ben, him as ben, uh, Nixon as the patriot, pe president, peacemaker, and visionary. Persuade my audience that that's the right way to look at him and not through the lens of Watergate. Let's look at the fact that nothing bad happened in Watergate. To this day, Watergate, the break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate was roughly, very roughly, 51 years ago, to this day, no one can point to any damage that was done by that break-in. Nothing important was stolen. Nothing important was misused. That was all nonsense. Uh, on the other hand, the damage that was done to the political system was immense. We got a group of left-wingers saying that, uh, the, that the Republican Party was anti-Constitution, anti-freedom, there's no, no evidence of that whatsoever. The worst, most vicious lie was that the Republican Party, and Nixon in particular, was racist and was arming African-Americans. That was just nonsense. There was never any evidence of that. Nixon, all his life, had been a major advocate for rights of African-Americans, and I know this extremely well. I'm talking to Ben Stein. His book is called The Peacemaker, Nixon, the Man, the President, and My Friend by Ben Stein. Back in just a moment. Glad to get your calls. 866-HEY-LARS. You've got the Lars Larson Show.
Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails in just a moment. But I have to tell you something. Uh, one of my great heroes in history is Sir Winston Churchill. And every year there are dinners in his honor. One is called the Chartwell Dinner. One of the speakers there is Mr. Alan Saltman, who's an attorney and the author most recently of a brand new book called No Peace with Hitler, Why Churchill Chose to Fight World War II Alone Rather Than Negotiate with Germany. Now, I think most of you who have followed uh, world history at all would know the name of Neville Chamberlain. In fact, it's almost uh, it's it's if you mention Chamberlain, you mention somebody who was open to appeasement. Appeasing uh, Hitler did not work. And as a result, Chamberlain was given the boot. Churchill was chosen as prime minister. And the rest is history because Churchill and his brilliance uh, brought about uh, basically saving the world. And Mr. Saltman, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, and I'm glad to see that you're speaking at the Chartwell Dinner. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Thank you, Lars. I appreciate it. Well, since we have limited time, I want you to tell my audience why it was that Sir Winston Churchill refused to negotiate with Hitler, and then maybe after that comment on how that might bear on some of today's critical decisions that are being made by our current uh, crop of leaders. Okay. Let me let me get to the first thing. Uh in order to figure out why he did it, you really have to go back to his childhood. Uh, and in the book, which I wrote with the assistance of a psychiatrist, we ex explore that very carefully. Uh, he had a, had a very, very hard childhood. His father really disliked him and didn't think he would ever amount to much in London. He probably thought he was going to be a drunk sitting lying in the gutters of London. Churchill had a great deal to overcome, and uh, he had a great will to do that. Um, he also had a great urge to uh, prove to his father that he was uh, much more capable than his father ever believed. And... That was a really driving factor uh, in his having to do something huge. And, and, of course, he also had to overcome the stigma that uh, he was given after the Gallipoli disaster in uh, 1914 and 1915, um, where uh, he was held responsible for a fiasco where Britain lost in eight months just about as many troops as we lost in Vietnam in 12 years. Um you put that together with a whole bunch of other things, and it explains why he needed to go forward and to prove something that, as I said, that he was big and he was going to wage a war that seemed unwinnable. Uh, people thought he was crazy uh, because Hitler had just gone through Western Europe like a hot knife through butter, and Britain had no allies at the time. The United States was not in the war. And Churchill said, no, we are not going to negotiate a peace treaty. We are going to stand and fight against Hitler. So Now, in hindsight, that makes perfect sense. But is, is there a way of characterizing just how close Great Britain was under its leadership before they brought uh, uh, Sir Winston in 
to simply saying, let's sue for peace. Let's sit down and see what kind of terms Hitler will give us and we'll live on our knees. Well, the it really happened in the last week of May of 1940. Uh, and the, the three big players uh, at the time, which were Churchill, Chamberlain, and Lord Halifax, the foreign secretary, when Churchill became the uh, prime minister on May the 10th, uh, they were pretty much agreed that they were going to fight the war to the end. What happened, though, is on that day, Germany also invaded France. And the, uh, the next couple of weeks, the war just went horribly for the French and, and for the British. And about the 25th of May, Lord Halifax had basically had enough and said, this is an unwinnable situation. Let's make a deal now while we still can. The uh, Churchill wouldn't hear of it. And to his credit, and this is somewhat surprising, uh, Chamberlain, uh, who, of course, two years earlier at uh, Munich uh, was at, at loggerheads with Churchill, Chamberlain stuck by Churchill and said, no, we are not going to capitulate. We are going to fight on. And uh, as I said, too much to his credit, uh, the two of them stood up and, and on the 28th of May, 1940, saved democracy. And, and it happened that quickly from, from May 10th to, to May 28th. It's a very short, not even three weeks. True. And I think if you really want to, uh, if you want to judge the, the period, when Churchill joined uh, Chamberlain's uh, cabinet, it was, it was at the time of September 1st, uh, 1939, when Germany had invaded Poland. And reluctantly, uh, Chamberlain brought Winston into the uh, cabinet. Uh, one of the things he knew is that uh, Churchill had a great... Uh, uh, he had a great, great feel for war and was going to stand up to uh, Hitler. Uh, and he felt there was a political need for him to be in the cabinet. What I think surprised Chamberlain and probably surprised Churchill a bit is the fact that over an eight-month period, they grew from being very, very far apart to being extremely close and loyal to each other. And I don't think that's a story that is is particularly well told. Uh, it, it is covered in the book, and I, I think it is an amazing situation, frankly. I'm talking to Alan Saltman, who's an attorney. His brand-new book is called No Peace with Hitler, Why Churchill Chose to Fight World War II Alone Rather Than Negotiate with Germany. He's going to be speaking at the Chartwell Dinner, which honors Sir Winston Churchill. Since I've got a short period just in the last minute, how might that bear on today's decisions to do things like negotiating with terrorist groups and, and paying them monies well, and, I, and giving up uh, con pe people who are locked up in prison in exchange for hostages? I've, I've been asked that question in one form or another several times. Not and surprised. I think that Winston Churchill would say, you have to be strong. Uh, I don't think uh, capitulation was not a part of his makeup. Uh, the the idea, which is sort of Reagan-esque, it seems to me, of, you know, stand firm with your uh, opponents or those people who are not, you know, the Russians, et cetera. Uh, 
and be willing to negotiate, but negotiate out of strength. I, I think that, that came right from Winston Churchill, and I think it's still applicable here. Well, I wish we had some leaders like that today. My guest, Alan Saltman, he is the author of No Peace with Hitler, Why Churchill Chose to Fight World War II Alone Rather Than Negotiate with Germany. Mr. Saltman, it's a pleasure. The Lars Larson Show. Back in a moment, we'll get to your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. This is the story of a It's Friday, Friday. Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday! Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a First Amendment Friday. Always glad to get your calls, too, at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Naysayers always go to the head of the line uh, at 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote our Twitter poll. You'll find it two places, at Lars Larson Show on X or Twitter. You can also find it on our website at LarsLarson.com. Adam Angievsky joins me now, the CEO and the founder of the group called Open the Books. You can find them at OpenTheBooks.com. It's .com, isn't it, Adam, not uh, .org? You bet, Lars. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me back. Uh, Why don't we start off with a list of some of the new ways you found that the Biden administration has been wasting our tax dollars, and there seem to be so many. Oh, there is so many. Well, the Biden administration just just gave Amtrak $16 billion. They called a press conference. They touted their accomplishment of appropriation of your taxpayer money into Amtrak. But... You know, last year, Amtrak again lost a billion dollars. And out of all the different routes, there's about 22 different routes across the country. Only one of them made money. Lars, the route from Chicago to Los Angeles last year lost $560 per passenger. They could have bought a round-trip airplane ticket for (laughs) everybody rather than putting them on the train and still saved money. Look, I love the train, Adam, and way back in the day, I've re- I rode on an Amtrak train with my parents and long distances like Michigan to the West Coast. Uh, and yet, if you want to ride on the train, good, pay the ticket. And yet they know that if they were at- to add that extra $500 to every ticket, how many tickets would Amtrak sell at that point? <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, uh, look, the cell line. I'm worried that his cell phone might have lost. Hang on a second. Let's see if we can get him back. Hey, Adam, are you there? I'm going to have Joel check on him to see if he's uh, on a solid line or not. Yeah, there he is. Hey, Adam, I thought I'd lost you there for a second. You were about to talk about the Acela line, the high-speed train. Yeah, that used to be very profitable for Amtrak. That's kind of their crown jewel. It used to make $98 per train mile traveled. Last year, it lost 2 bucks for every mile that every train traveled down the Acela line. What, what explains the difference? Why, why did it go from a money maker to a money loser? So their costs went way up. And here's the deal. They're not transparent with their payroll. So they, only do, they have 19,000 employees. They 
the average Amtrak employee we were able to calculate makes $127,000 a year. Hold on, that's the average? The Holy average. Cow. And that's on base salary cash compensation alone, not including the cost of benefits. And so they only disclosed 10, their top 10 executives, the pay of those people, and not the other 19,000 rank-and-file workers. So, of course, they have a lot to hide. Their 10 executives make, all make between a half million and $800,000 a year. Now, hold on. But, Adam, in a private company, if you were losing money, nobody gets raises. And if you're losing money, you shed executives, you shed everybody you can till you can get back to a money-making status, don't you? And yet Amtrak, while it's still a government agency, is a somewhat independent government agency. Am I right about its status? That's right, yes. It's congressionally chartered, but it's run like a private corporation. So why don't they so run it like they actually have to make a bottom line or at the very, at the very least break even? Well, and you're asking the right questions, Lars. So on the 10 executives, they make the point to us on a request for comment that half of the compensation is at risk. It's based on merit. It's based on performance. But somehow Amtrak can continue losing money. And since 1971, they've never made money. And the executives still get massive bonuses equivalent to up to 50% of their cash compensation every single year. So, look, there has to be a lot of reform at Amtrak, and it's, it's actually a train going down the wrong set of tracks. I mean, I'm sure that what they're really saying is they're saying, boss, you got to give me the bonus this year because we, if it hadn't been for me, we'd have lost even more. I mean, that, that's, the only imag that's the only argument I can imagine they could make successfully. We would have lost more if I hadn't been there. Pay me the bonus so I'll stick around. Exactly. So here's you asked for examples of government waste. So we yeah. just, you know, you know, with the uh, civil unrest in our nation's college campuses, as taxpayers look at these elite and wealthy universities that have incubated discrimination, bigotry, and anti-Semitism, the operating question is just how much taxpayer money has been poured into these institutions over the course of the last five years. So our auditors at OpenTheBooks.com, we answered that question with the eight schools of the Ivy League, and then we added in Stanford and Northwestern. And, Lars, here's the answer. $45 billion in terms of taxpayer subsidies, special tax breaks, and federal payments on contracts and grants just into those 10 wealthy schools over the course of the past five years. They've all got huge endowments, and the taxpayers are still subsidizing their existence, and they're private. I want to, be, before we run out of time, though, I'm talking to Adam Andrzejewski, CEO and founder of Open the Books. Find him at open a book, openthebooks.com. How did your map of poop literally uh, actually raise a stink during the debate between uh, Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom last night? Well, it was a seminal moment at the debate. Most of the uh, commentators think it was a pivotal moment during the debate when DeSantis showed on a question about the homeless in San Francisco, uh, he showed a picture of our 2019 uh, San Francisco poop map. And basically what we did in 2019 is between – we mapped 130,000 cases 
of human waste on the city streets of San Francisco. And yes, Lars, we did use brown pins. There's a brown out in the Bay Area. The whole city was covered with brown pins. DeSantis showed a picture of that, and everybody, right, left, and center, went crazy on it. So we, uh, we stayed up all night. We got no sleep, the entire team, and we just published an update. We updated all the numbers since 2019. So it's breaking news on your show right now. Uh, the numbers have all gotten worse. Nothing has gotten better in the city of San Francisco. We're at all-time highs. We, uh, there's 35,000 instances in reported cases of human poop on city streets in San Francisco last year. And how did Gavin Newsom answer that charge that things are getting worse in the state where you're governor? So we updated those numbers today, and that wasn't a part of the debate last night. Now, it was instructive to watch Newsom's reaction when DeSantis showed that devastating picture, and he just laughed. And obviously, Governor Newsom's very slick. He's a good debater, and he tries to laugh things off rather than answer them. Not exactly a good strategy. I don't think it's going to work out well. Adam, thanks for what you do at Open the Books. Lars, thank you. You betcha. That's Adam Angievsky, CEO and founder of a great organization called Open the Books at OpenTheBooks.com. They put together public data, and sometimes it ends up being terribly embarrassing for some of the people who are holding public office. I'll get to your phone calls and your emails in just a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that at LarsLarson Show on X or Twitter. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. A refresher on what diversity is. What in the hell's diversity? Well, I, I could be wrong, but I believe uh, diversity is an old, old wooden ship that was used during the Civil War era. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails. As we say, we promise that this is the best conversation in talk journalism, and you can be part of it if you choose to. Not everybody does that. An awful lot of people just listen, but that's okay. We leave the door open for anyone. And if you want to join that conversation, 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com, and you, you can rest assured that every single day, naysayers go to the head of the line. Now, sometimes I have to explain that to people. If you disagree with my point of view on something or something I've said, I'm glad to have you call and do your best to counter my arguments. And if I'm not ready for that, then my argument's not ready either. In any case, glad to have you do that. And if you have a moment, go to our website or go to Twitter and vote in our Twitter poll. We put up a brand new question written from the news of the day, so we try to make it as fresh as possible. You'll find it at Lars Larson Show on Twitter or at LarsLarson.com, our website that doesn't suffer from some of the censorship that Twitter likes to do. 
in full transparency, am I pro-Second Amendment? Yep. Do I own guns? Yep. Do I believe in the right to carry a gun, keep a gun, all of that good stuff? Yep, I do. So if you want to factor that in, I have a bias in the following subject. But when it comes to Measure 114, I no longer live in the state of Oregon, but because I buy from gun stores in the state of Oregon, I'm affected by what Measure 114 attempted to do, which was effectively make it illegal for any citizen to be able to buy any gun whatsoever. Now, I know that there are people behind Measure 114 saying, no, we just want to make you go and get a permit to be able to buy a gun. Not to carry one, just to be able to buy the gun. You have to go and take a class, pass a test, uh, apply for, do a background check, the whole nine yards, just to be able to buy a gun. And I thought that was unconstitutional. Unfortunately, last week we found out that the state-level judge also agreed and said, yep, it's unconstitutional under the state constitution. So I wanted to talk about that with Sam Paradis, who's the spokesman for Gun Owners of America and their sister organization, the Gun Owners Foundation. He also serves as executive director of Gun Owners of California. Sam, welcome back to the program. Lars, it's always a pleasure to be with you, man. Always provocative, always the truth, man. So let's well, we do try. This. We, we try, Sam, and, and if I'm not provocative, I'll get a naysayer who'll call up and say you're completely wrong. But, you know, there have been lots of cases in lots of states, and we've seen a bunch of federal decisions, including Maryland and mm-hmm. some other states where the Supreme Court has even weighed in. But state-level decisions like this don't happen very often, do they? No, they don't, actually. Uh, it just so happens that because the state of Oregon had a provision within their own state constitution protecting the right to keep and bear arms uh, for lawful citizens, um, it prevented them from doing what they tried to do. So what's this going to mean? Where, where does... We don't have that kind of a proof. And, and, and that kind of surprised me because, you know, it's funny, Sam, uh, years and years ago I, had, I was talking to a constitutional expert, and he said, Lars, you got to understand, mm-hmm. the federal constitution is pretty spare. It's, it's pretty thin. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't have... Uh, it, it talks more broad topics. He said, you ought to read state constitutions. And after that, I did. State constitutions are incredibly detailed. They'll get down to you have a right to carry a knife and you have a right to do this and you have a right to do that. And they're, 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 they're documents that are far more complicated, but a lot more detailed than the federal constitution. California has no constitutional protection in its state constitution for gun ownership. That is correct. Um, here in California, we have to, um, rely on the federal Second Amendment in order to protect our, our Second Amendment rights. So the legislature here and the governor, they believe that they have uh, every right and all the power to control guns in every which way they can, and they basically flip the middle finger to the Supreme Court and the federal Constitution. So that's why we're here fighting every day. That's why we fought in Oregon against uh, Measure 114, and we'll fight all across the country whenever any local government, any state government, um, uh, tries to infringe on the right to keep and bear arms. Well, I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but I've been told by some of the people who follow this stuff and know the law better than I, or know the mm-hmm. Constitution better than I do, they kind of expect that even though the state-level judge, the circuit judge, said it's unconstitutional, that somehow they're fully expecting that when it gets, it gets to the, uh, the, the appeals courts and, and even the state Supreme Court, that they'll figure out some way to say, no, it's not. And, and kill the law any or, or uphold the law anyway. Do you, would you agree with that? Well, the naysayers aren't paying a lot, uh, very close attention to what actually happened with this measure 
Um, judge Rascio, the the lowest level judge in the lowest level court, issued a restraining order preventing M114 from going into effect. It was appealed to the appellate court, and then all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said uh, the 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 restraining order is in effect. Now they don't issue uh, and agree on restraining orders that are issued uh, unless there is a high probability of winning the case in court. So now that we got that ruling from the Supreme Court, it went back down to the uh, court of origin, and uh, the judge actually did the merits portion of the case, where he wasn't just issuing a restraining order preventing the law from going into effect. He actually heard the arguments on both sides and ruled that, in fact, M-114 is unconstitutional, and unless the citizens of Oregon vote to change their, amend their constitution, it is the law of the land. And um, and it's backed up by the Supreme Court and, and the U.S. Supreme Court and the, the Second Amendment, but they didn't need to go that far because Oregon's uh, right to keep and bear arms provision ruled the day. So and, that's where we are right now. Well, the the other concern that's been expressed to me, and, and I want your take on that, is mm-hmm. that while the measure passed by voters by a very small margin, 27,000 votes, mm-hmm. that the state legislature mm-hmm. could say, fine, we'll just pass it as a state law. Now, you would say, and I would say, well, then you'll, they'll just take it back to court and argue that the law is unconstitutional, because that's all that a, a ballot measure does is create a law. But if, if the legislature mm-hmm. does it, even if all they do is change a couple of details in it, then doesn't, does that start the process all over where to challenge the law? You'll have to take it right back it, to a court and, and, and demand that they rule the law uh, unconstitutional. That is exactly right. It's, it's, it's two sides to a, the same coin. Uh, whether it's passed by a, an initiative, a ballot initiative like M114, or it's passed statutorily by the state legislature, it's still a statute. And it still comes under the, the, the shadow of the, the Constitution of the state of Oregon. So if it's unconstitutional by measure, it's unconstitutional by, by passage of the legislature. So either way, we're going to win. And you know, Lars, the left, the hardcore progressive left that is pushing this kind of gobbledygook, they're going to try everything they can to drag this out as much as possible. They're going to try to bankrupt us. Uh, and take us, make us go to court and challenge them at every uh, uh, at every turn, and because they believe they have a, a, a bottomless pit pocket uh, in the, the form of taxpayers' dollars to to uh, fight the legal fight, and we have to get our resources from lawful citizens who believe in the right to keep and bear arms, and and, and it doesn't matter. People are standing up. We're going to fight uh, the legislature, and and we're going to watch this thing go to fruition. And I think we're going to be victorious. So I'm, I'm very confident and happy with the way things are going with. Uh, well, and I hope, to the I hope that in the meantime, system. they haven't destroyed the entire retail industry for guns because it's still operating. But everybody who's in that business knows if one of these laws ever gets passed and then sticks for any length of time, 
you effectively put everybody who's in the gun business out of business. That Sam Paradis, he's spokesman for Gun Owners of America and Gun Owners Foundation and serves as the executive director of Gun Owners of California. Sam, thanks very much. I appreciate the time. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find a brand new question each and every day. We write it from the news of the day. Sometimes I do it. Sometimes my producers do it. We make it kind of a group effort to put together a great question for it. You can find it at Lars Larson Show on Twitter or X if you prefer. Or you can find it on our website at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to the Lars The Lars Larson Show. About courage, I learned. Wise words from President Reagan. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. We the people are the driver. The government is the car. And we decide where it should go. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I'll be glad to get to your calls here in just a moment. But I want to talk about something that actually caused me a lot of anguish this year. I have to admit, I've always been a fan of Justice Clarence Thomas on the U.S. Supreme Court. And then this year, word began to come out about all the goodies that Justice Thomas had taken. And I know that there were people saying, but he's a good conservative, Lars. You shouldn't attack good conservatives. Here's the point. If you decide to become a United States Supreme Court justice, you don't get a big paycheck. In fact, most of the people who sit on the court could probably make 10 times the amount they make as a court justice, which is around 200000 a year, if they worked at any of the top-notch law firms in any of the big cities in America. It doesn't say we're going to pay you 200000 plus all the swag you can pick up on the, on the side. And the fact is, all, they, all we expect of justices is that they also disclose all the stuff that they get which didn't exactly happen either. So now the Supreme Court has adopted a code of ethics, a little bit late after the horse is already out of the barn. So I thought we'd get somebody knowledgeable about the law, not me, but Sarah Parshall Perry, legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at Heritage. Sarah, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Lars. Should we take this code of ethics as uh, enough and good and, uh, and, and adequate, or, or should we take it as, as just a joke? No, I think it's more than adequate. And in fact, they aren't duty bound to actually write and implement their own code of ethics anyway. And that's because they are already publicly committed to following the code of judicial conduct for all federal judges at every single level. Obviously, this applies to judges at the lower court levels and also at the Supreme Court level. They've always followed it. They've never created their own ethics code because they've never had a need to do so. But understanding what I think is this increasingly sort of persuasive narrative about the fact that there is some kind of purported ethics crisis at the Supreme Court, we've seen legislative attempts, whether those are by Hank Johnson or Representative Sheldon Whitehouse, to sort of shoehorn in this notion of legislative oversight 
of the judiciary. And it is very clear, based on constitutional law and the wording of the Constitution (laughs) itself, that the judiciary is obviously something that is to be separate from the legislative control. We have a tripartite government, and the only apolitical branch in the United States government are the federal courthouses, and specifically so, as created by Congress, this is specifically inclusive of the Supreme Court. So we're very much, um, I would say, appreciative of this extra step. I find it unnecessary, but gratifying. These are justices that recognize that there is sort of this Durham and Strong about what's going on in terms of ethics codes. And they said we are reinforcing, reinvigorating our commitment to make sure everything that we do is above board and that above all, we avoid the appearance of impropriety. See, and that's why it kind of surprised me that they didn't do it sooner, Sarah, because because here are two things I noticed from the outside. When this came out, I thought, well, you know, I imagine that when you're on the Supreme Court, you're you're famous and you probably have a lot of people who say, oh, why don't you come with me? Like, you know, this relationship that's now been described between uh, Harlan Crow, the son of Trammell Crow, the late Trammell Crow and Justice Thomas. But I mean, I guess it's one thing if somebody invites you over to their house for dinner and they say, hey, we're having a barbecue, have a couple of hamburgers. I don't know that you have to file a disclosure sheet on that. But when your friends are saying, hop on my private jet, fly to the other side of the planet and stay at a place that's either not available at any price or available only at prices that would make, you know, most of us think uh, the value of a house for a vacation, it would seem like some of the justices, especially the ones that say, look, I don't take anything from the outside, and there are a couple of them, that they would have said, why don't we have a set of standards and we'll all abide by it? And if we're not embarrassed to get these gifts, no big deal to disclose them, right? Right. Although I will say, you know, we have to treat the justices as human as well, right? These are individuals who aren't just Supreme Court justices. They may or may not recognize that something like taking a fishing trip or flying on an individual's private jet is something that would actually taint their ability to impartially render verdicts based on the rule of law and an understanding of what the law specifically requires. Remember that Marbury versus Madison established the Supreme Court as the ultimate authority on what the Constitution and the law is. And so they want to make sure that they are impartial. But again, being human, I wouldn't necessarily know as a Supreme Court justice, for example, that my fishing trip a few summers ago would any necessarily be more responsive and required from a reporting standpoint than, for example, an amicus brief that I was getting by that insane, that same individual party or their representatives. These are individuals. There are cases that sometimes command upward of 120, 130 amicus briefs. I give you last year's Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health abortion decision. There are multiple opportunities. If we sort of connect the tendrils, which might snake out in all directions, top to bottom across the country, that we can arguably say individuals are affected here, they're affected here. But, for example, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson just made a perfect decision this past uh, Supreme Court term to recuse herself from the oh, from Harvard admission. Correct. Yep. Because she sat on the board. That's an obvious conflict of interest. Things like a fishing trip or staying in an individual's private residence, even as high end or hoity toity as that particular residence might be, don't automatically raise the imprimatur of some difficult ethics 
problem that needs solving. And what I think this is, and I think you're probably leaning the same way, is essentially an attempt by liberal elected officials to ultimately sway the particular branch of authority and of government that they have no impact on. This is a very rule of law court. They are textualists. They are originalists. And I don't think the party in power right now from the White House down to Congress, the upper and lower chambers, believe that the Supreme Court really knows what it's doing when it comes to federal law. And with that, I would disagree. Well, they, they might they might make that case. I think their actual case, if you get in their heart of heart, Sarah, is we don't like their decisions, right or wrong. Even if we realize the decision is legally right, we don't like it because it undercuts the liberal position. Let me ask you about something else, though. You're testifying with Riley Gaines in front of Congress next Tuesday, and I know what the I two am. of you are going to be talking about. Would you mind telling my audience? Sure. I'm very much looking forward to it. We're discussing the Biden administration and the Department of Education's attempt to rewrite longstanding federal civil rights law in Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972. Women have benefited in education at all levels and in all programs, including athletics, top to bottom from graduate school down to kindergarten, because we have the benefit of a longstanding 50-year-old federal civil rights law, but the Biden administration has promoted and proposed two rules that want to redefine sex to include gender identity. They've used a ham-handed approach based on the Supreme Court's decision in Bostock in 2020 that is illegal and it's unsupported by any plain letter reading of that law. Riley Gaines will be testifying about her particular experience about an athlete competing alongside a biological male. And I'll be testifying specifically on the fact that these two rules proposed by the Biden administration not only render insignificant, they eviscerate the movement of women's rights and all of the gains women have achieved in education, in addition to the fact that they violate procedural law. And, And the thing is, Sarah, I've had people say, well, men aren't in any more capable than women in athletics. I said, really? Ask Leah Thomas about that. And ask the <laughs> young lady who came in second or third. Or ask some of the, the wrestlers or the weightlifters or any of the rest of those. Are you really saying that, that, that men are physically stronger than women? Yes, we really are. That's Sarah Partial Perry. She's at the Heritage Foundation at the Edme Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. It's First Amendment Friday. Back in a moment. You're listening to... Senator John Kennedy on the Washington establishment. The Washington establishment is working harder than an ugly stripper to cover up whatever happened. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I want to bring you up to date on what's happening in Donald Trump's fraud trial in New York State. And I want to get into the details of this because I keep hearing from people saying, well, if he's charged in four different places, in four different prosecutions, a total of 93 indictments, he must be guilty of something. I don't think that works logically or legally, but I'll get to the details in just a moment. But if you want to join uh, the best conversation in talk journalism, especially on a First Amendment Friday, 
866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. You can find a brand new question and poll question every single day on Twitter or X if you prefer, at Lars Larson Show, and on our website at LarsLarson.com. But I got to tell you about this. The You know, the idea, and I hear this from callers. They say, well, you know, Trump's accused 91 different times, 91 indictments, four different cases, everywhere from Mar-a-Lago, Florida, to Washington, D.C., to New York City. Well, in New York City, Donald Trump is accused of fraud. And the attorney general, uh, the New York State attorney general, Letitia James, who campaigned when she ran for the office she holds, saying she would hunt down Donald Trump, that she would find him and prosecute him for something. And then she couldn't exactly find something that he'd actually done in which she could bring a criminal case. So she brought a civil case against Donald Trump. They said, my goodness, he over and underestimated the values of the real estate properties that he owned. And that was the crime. Well, you know, there's a problem with this. In most fraud cases, I think virtually all fraud cases, There has to be somebody who got defrauded. Now, that's not a legal argument. I'm just saying that if you say so-and-so committed fraud, really? Uh, Did they take advantage of some people and skin them for some money? Well, no. You mean the victims aren't unhappy? No, the victims are actually happy. In fact, they said they wanted to do more business with Donald Trump. Let me give you the details because it came out this week in Donald Trump's fraud trial in New York State. And I know a lot of liberals are putting their hopes on this. They think if we could just get him convicted of something, we'll be able to keep him from running for president. And then I have to remind them that a uh, about 100 years ago, there was a an infamous Democrat. He was a full-blown socialist, Eugene Debs. Uh, and he he actually ran for president from prison. Now, do I think Donald Trump is going to have to run for president from prison? No, I don't. But Here's what's happened this week, because Donald Trump's defense team has called a number of witnesses, including the witnesses of the people who would have been the victims of Donald Trump's fraud if there were actually any victims. Well, if Donald Trump overestimated the value of his properties and then borrowed a whole giant pile of money, that's the allegation. Who got ripped off? The fact is, nobody got ripped off. In fact, as Jonathan Turley writes, and believe me, Jonathan Turley is not a, a a big conservative. He said the evidence shows that the banks made money on the loans, which were paid off either early or on time. None of the banks that are supposedly the victims of this fraud complained about the Donald Trump organization's estimations, which were accompanied by a warning that the banks should not rely on those estimates. So, when Donald Trump's organization said, this is what we think our properties are worth, but don't rely on those estimates. And then when you ask people who are in the commercial real estate business, I've never been in it, but I understand that if, if you go to somebody and say, that big uh, skyscraper, that big hotel in some town, how much money is that worth? And you talk to one real estate person, says, not a dime past $100 million. And you talk to somebody else, says, it's worth at least a hundred and a quarter million. And somebody else says, I wouldn't give $75 million for that property. I'll tell you what, tell me where you've ever run into a situation where all of the people estimating the value of any property are always on the same page. But if the bank was happy with the arrangement, if they made money on it, if they lost no money, nobody got cheated, 
then what is this case all about? And what it's all about is Letitia James, New York State's attorney general, going after Donald Trump because she promised when she ran for office and begged for people to vote for her, she said, I will hunt down Trump and I will get him guilty on something. So one of the people who was at one of the banks that would have been the victims of fraud if there had actually been any fraud in Donald Trump's fraud case. I, I just love saying that. This guy named Vrablik. Vrablik wrote emails at, at the time about the benefits to the bank in dealing with the Trumps, as well as pitches to the Trump family that the bank was happy to extend conditions that allowed added benefits of flexibility, rate, and service in order to get their business relationship. They wanted Donald Trump's business, and they worked hard to get it. And they say it does appear that some of the assets were either inflated or deflated in value, which may or may not be a common practice in New York real estate. It's not a good idea. I mean, I'd admit it's not a good idea. And there is a penalty for doing such things. Usually, it's a fine of some kind. But in this case, a fine is not going to make Letitia James' friends very happy. They know that Donald Trump is going to get the Republican Party's nomination for president. We know that six months ahead of when the nomination is actually going to be awarded. They know that when he runs against Joe Biden, that he's going to mop the floor with Joe Biden. They also know that there's no easy way to get rid of Joe Biden, to kick him to the curb without looking really bad to a lot of their most fervent supporters of the Democrat Party, party of slavery since 1829. So they realize they're in effects. They don't know how to get rid of Trump, of uh, Joe Biden. They don't know how to get uh, Donald Trump off the stage. They realize that every time they indict him again, his poll numbers just go up, and they realize that nobody got cheated. And what Jonathan Turley writes, which I thought was hilarious, he says that all became curiouser, like curiouser and curiouser, this week when two bankers were called by the defense, Rosemary Vrablick and David Williams, who worked on the Deutsche Bank loans for the Trumps for years. They testified that the banks made millions of dollars from the deals and viewed Donald Trump as a much sought-after whale client, which Vrablick described as very high-net-worth individuals. Williams testified that net worth is subjective in such documents as property valuations and are offered more as mere estimates. He says it is not uncommon for a bank's estimates to be different from the estimates made by the client. No kidding. So for all of you who are pinning your 2024 hopes that somehow Donald Trump can be removed from the stage, that Joe Biden, well, you'll figure out what to do with Joe Biden. You'll also figure out what to do with uh, Kamala Hamas. Uh, who who is also not a great candidate to run for president of the United States, that at the end of all of that, that you'll end with Trump gone, and then the Democrats can run whoever they want and just claim that they, they won because you got rid of Trump through these four prosecutions. Well, the pro four prosecutions, Georgia's not going well. Uh, New York is now not going well. I would suggest that Washington, D.C. is not going to go well. And despite all their best efforts, you're not going to be able to get rid of Donald Trump as a candidate for president of the United States. Not this way, anyway. Uh, back in a moment, we'd be glad to get to your calls. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show the and Lars the Radio Larson Northwest Show. Network. We tend not to 